1: Well, this morning, we're going, to be, we're going to be in two books this morning. We're going to be in the book of Proverbs and the book of Romans. So if you want, you can turn to uh, the book of Proverbs right now. And um, the book of Proverbs is, is kind of a unique book in the Bible. It's, it's not a historical book. Uh, it's not a book of prophecy. It's not a book of uh, a poetry, although it at times is poetic. Uh, it, is, it is a collection of wisdom sayings. Uh, many many great passages are, are from the book of Proverbs that we know, but it's, it's structured differently. Often, uh, the, verses, the verse alone, one or two verses will, will create a wise saying and then it moves on to another one, and the, the next wise saying may be built on it, may not be. Uh, which, for my mind, I'm, it makes it hard for me to understand the structure of it because there really isn't much of a structure. But other parts, there, there are longer passages that are trying to get across this one concept. Now, the, the word proverbs is, is from the Hebrew word masol, which, which sounds like muscle, uh, which I think is kind of appropriate because a, a proverb is, is a wise saying. It's a wise teaching. Uh, in general, it's meant to be a governing principle. And I like that idea that it kind of sounds like muscle because it's something that often needs to be trained, something needs to be developed, something needs to be exercised. And, uh, and that, that wise proverb, that governing principle, ideally is going to keep you out of trouble. Now, social media is full of these these proverbs, right? On Facebook and Twitter and and, uh, Instagram and so forth, you'll see all these nice pictures with the little cute sayings on them and stuff. And sometimes they're great and and sometimes they're not so good. Uh, But if you're getting all your wisdom from social media, that's on you, right? It's not the most reliable source of wisdom. Uh, It may be popular, but popular belief does not make something right. It just means that a lot of people are wrong in that sense. But fortunately for us, our father, he's given us something. Uh, he's given us this wisdom. He's given us his word. And, uh, and we have many wise sayings uh, throughout scripture. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus, and a lot of his wise sayings are in the gospels. Not all of them, but most of them we'll find in, in the gospels. But f- for a big chunk of the w- wisdom literature is found in the book of Proverbs, which largely has been attributed to written by King Solomon, that wise king, the, the wisest man around. And that's, you know, 3,000 years ago that he wrote those. That's amazing to me. But what's, what's really amazing is that, although it was written 3,000 years ago, whole different other time long before electricity or the internet and everything, different culture, and yet it's still relevant today. It still applies today. And that's a great test for wisdom. Does it stand the test of time? Does it span cultures and generations? And that's the case. It's like honey in that sense that honey has no, no best before date, it has no expiry date. And that's the, that's the test of true wisdom that it, it will speak to everyone's heart. It will speak beyond just certain behaviors because it's speaking to the character of a person. So join me then in the beginning of Proverbs chapter one. I just want to read to you the first seven verses, because I think uh, it does an excellent job of really kind of laying out the point of this book, this great book of Proverbs. So it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Here's the purpose of it. To know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, inequity. To give prudence to the naive, to the, to the young. To the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the word of the wise and the riddles. So it's not only for the people who are who are not as intelligent who are learning, but even the wise man still seeks out the understanding of these wisdom sayings. But then verse seven the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's that last part that is so key. It's that fear, that, that not I'm terrified, but that, re- that reverence, that awe, that respect for God that is so, the beginning of it. It's, it's sort of that, that moment where you realize that you're not God. And if you're not God, you're not all knowing. But we have the mind of Christ. We have God. And so we're going to submit ourselves to him and to his wisdom, to his teaching, even if it's hard for us to understand that. Because right now I see so much of our culture where we place ourselves as God, and when we agree with God, we're all the more happy for that. But when we disagree with God, well, that's that's out of date and no longer applies, and we put it aside. It Doesn't work that way. God's wisdom is timeless. God's wisdom never goes out of date. And so, if you're disagreeing with God, it just means you're wrong. That's all. Or maybe you haven't yet seen the full picture. But God's truth is just that—it's truth. Now, one of the repeated themes that we see in the book of Proverbs is this this topic of the word heart. It shows up 94 times in 31 chapters. So about three times per chapter talking about this this idea, this concept of heart. A very, very famous one is in Proverbs 4. So if you want to turn to Proverbs 4, beginning in verse 20, we have, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your your ear to hear my sayings. He's saying, pay attention. This isn't critical. This is important. Verse 21, do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. So my words, this wisdom is gonna provide life to you. It's, It's gonna encourage you. But verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. I like how the NIV puts it this time. Above all, guard your heart. The, the The key instruction he's saying here, the most important thing you do is you need to guard your heart because it's so critical, it's so central to who you are. And we need to understand this word heart because I think I think it's such a nebulous term. It's so hard to, to describe. I mean, even think about how we use the word heart in our own everyday language, right? We, we talk about a physical heart. We, we talk about it in romantic terms. I, I love you from the bottom of my heart. We, we think of it in terms of desire. Their heart just wasn't in it, and that's why the Leafs didn't make it out of the first round. right? We, we think about it in terms of character, that you've got a good heart in terms of how they're behaving, or maybe emotionally. My heart is heavy. My heart is sad. We also even define it to talking about the center of something, the, the heart of the matter. Let's get to the heart of it. So there's no one single definition for this word heart. And that's, that's true of language, especially when it comes trying to understand concepts that it's so difficult to try to narrow down into, to one thing. And so really what you need to do is you need to let the context define what that word means. And so sometimes that word heart is, is referring to emotions and sometimes it's to desire, but often that word heart is referring to the inner man or more specifically to our spirit. So when it talks about in Jeremiah 17, 9, about the heart of man being de- deceitful and beyond beyond help, beyond cure, it's talking about our old Adam spirit. But then in Ezekiel 36, it talks about getting a new heart, getting a new spirit. And so we have a new heart today. And so that's what we want to look at today. We want to look at this idea of heart and how do we guard our heart? Because it's so critical, because where your heart is pointed, that's where your mind's going to go, and that's where you're going to go. It's sort of like when you're driving a car. Right? When you're learning how to drive a car, what you know, good instructions would say, look where you're going. Right? If you're looking at all the light posts, guess what? You're going to be introduced to a light post soon, right? Because you you see the light post and eventually start moving towards it. And so where your heart is pointed, that's where you're going to go. And that's why it says guard your heart because we have an enemy the satan world the flesh they're all trying to distract you they're all trying to pull your heart in all kinds of other directions so that's our that's our aim this morning let's let's pray father we thank you for this new heart you've given to us but now we want to guard it we want to be careful to make sure that it doesn't come under the influence of of the enemy that will cause hurt and pain in our own lives and those around us as well and so i pray lord jesus that you will Instruct us this morning that you will be the teacher to help us understand the importance of our heart and the importance of guarding it, but even how, and how we can do that in you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, flip over to Romans chapter 6. As I said, Romans is going to be the other book we're going to be in this morning. So in Romans chapter 6, we've got a, a pinnacle verse. And I love the book of Romans, especially Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. But in Romans 6, verse 14, Paul makes this incredible conclusion based on what he was saying before. But he he says in verse 14, For sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. This thing called sin, it won't control you anymore. It won't master you because you're not under the law, you're now under grace. It's an incredible truth, but but what people begin to think is that I'm not under law. That means the law has no control over me. But if, but if I'm not under law, then what's going to keep me from sinning? And Paul understands that's the question. He he recognizes that. So in verse 15, he says, what should we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. He understands that because for some people, they only see the law is what's keeping them in line. That if you take the law away, then what's to prevent us from sinning? What's going to stop us from getting drunk? What's going to stop us from gambling and cheating and driving a Ford and listening to Barry Manilow? There's nothing to prevent that now if you take the law away. And so you need the law to keep us in check. But the reality is law demands, law, law doesn't control sin, it amplifies it. And now we're under grace. Well, does that mean it doesn't matter if I sin? Well, no, because there's still consequences. Verse 16, Paul writes Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? We raised our kids with a mantra life is about choices, and choices have consequences, so make good choices. When I choose to present myself to sin, when I choose to follow sin, there are still negative consequences to those actions. And that's really what Proverbs, all the entire chapter of Proverbs 7 is all about. So let's let's flip back over to Proverbs. We're getting to know our Bibles this morning. In Romans, or sorry, Proverbs chapter 7, Solomon is gonna speak to this one topic about the consequences of listening to sin, of following sin. And, and in many ways, I, I kind of think Rome, sorry, Proverbs chapter 7 is like one of those ABC after-school specials. Anyone remember those after-school specials? Right? You, you get home after, I'd get home after school, and, and, and maybe on ABC, go figure, they would show a, a special. Would, we're interrupting this regular scheduled program to bring to you an ABC after-school special. And it would be a, a short episode uh, on some kind of topic. Maybe it was about drugs or bullying or or how do you deal with people who are different than you or all kinds of different topics. And it was just this one-off show, one-off um, uh, program, basically, that would try to convey some kind of deeper moral. And in many ways, that's what Proverbs 7 is going to be. It's going to be telling us a story in order that we can understand this deeper purpose. So let's begin in verse 1. Again, Solomon writes, my son, keep my words. I mean, I love that picture. He's a father speaking to his son. Now, I do find it interesting, though. Solomon, known for his wisdom, what else is he known for? His many women, right? He had about 350 wives, about 650 concubines. That's roughly 999 bad choices right there. Plus all the other false gods and temples and high places that he worshiped that were belonging to these women he's sleeping with. So maybe this is an example of those who can't do, they teach, which is why I'm up here. Maybe I don't know. Let's, let's not go beyond that one. All right. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on your tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters her words. Now it'd be easy for us to read Proverbs 7 and only think it's speaking to adultery, or maybe only speaking to some kind of a sexual sin, Maybe, maybe pornography or maybe sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And so that's what it's warning us to. And I think that's true, but I think it's more than that. I think it applies in a general sense it applies to all sin. Where the adulteress isn't just some kind of adulterous woman or an adulterous man leading you astray, it's really the enemy of how it's trying to seduce you and I into sin. And that that seduction that adulteress the Bible calls the flesh. That's what we see often over and over again in the New Testament. So it's critical that we're on the same page when we're talking about this thing called the flesh because for me growing up, I never quite understood it. And it didn't help that it was often mistranslated as your sinful nature. And the damage of that is if you understand the flesh is your sinful nature, what does that say about you? It says you're sinful. And then who are you battling? You're battling yourself. And now you're in this tug of war, you're fighting, and, and so Who wins? You do, and you lose at the same time. Guaranteed, no matter what the outcome is. But it's a really bad translation. The word flesh in the New Testament is the Greek word sarx, and it just simply means flesh. And I think Paul uses that term often because he's referring to something that's in our bodies, but not us. See, in Romans chapter 7, he calls this thing called indwelling sin, or sin that dwells in us. And he talks about sin as being something other than himself, See, too often we see the word sin and we think of verb, we think of action. But in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, he's using that word sin as a noun, as some kind of an entity. And so it's the law of sin, this principle of sin. This I don't want to use power of sin because that phrase is used later to talk about the law. But this principle that dwells in our bodies, dwells within our flesh, that is not me, but is against me. Think about some of the language that Paul uses in Romans 7, that I'm not doing what I want to do. Well, if it was a sinful nature, then that's not true. If it was a sinful nature, he'd be saying, I'm doing what I part of me wants to do. But he says, it's no longer I, but sin that dwells in him. He's making a distinction between him and sin. So sin and dwelling sin is in me, but it's not me. That's my old master. It's the one that controlled me. He talks about in Romans 6, that you used to be a slave of sin. Again, he's not talking about behavior. He's talking about this thing, this entity. You were a slave to it. It dominated you. It controlled you. But thanks to the cross, in Romans 6, 6, and 7, we saw that you and I, knowing this, that the old self, the old you, the one that was in Adam, was crucified, now no longer lives. You were crucified with Christ so that sin would no longer be your master. Sin would no longer control you. Sin would no longer be over you because he who's died is freed from sin's rule, sin's dominion. And so the slave died, but the old master's still around. And so the flesh is still around and it's still trying to attack us. Now, some have tried to to understand the flesh in the sense of asking the question, is the flesh like a virus? And a virus is is something that just acts. It has no intelligence to it. It's just acting. People would often talk about COVID as, oh, it's evading the vaccines. No, the virus isn't doing anything. It's got no intelligence to it. It's just simply running the natural course of what it does. Whereas the flesh is more than a virus. It has intelligence, meaning it's choosing to do something, it's choosing not to do something. There's a tactical element to the flesh and how it attacks us. And it's going to attack each and every one of us a little bit different uh, based on your past, based on the uniqueness of who you are. And so it's still around in me, and it's still trying to tempt me. It's still attacking my mind. As Romans 7.23 says, this law, this principle is attacking me, waging war with my mind, trying to make me a prisoner of itself. And that's, that's going to be true till the day you and I leave which means it's not sinful to be tempted. It's not wrong to be tempted. It's just reality. It's going to happen because this thing called the flesh is inside of us. And so in Genesis 4, 7, God warns Cain. He says to Cain, he says, watch out. Be careful because sin is at the door, crouching like a tiger, looking to pounce, looking to attack, looking for an opening to see those who are vulnerable and those who are low. So Paul, sorry, Solomon's gonna tell us a story about that now in, back in Proverbs 7. So in verses six and seven, he says this, for at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. So he's sitting up in his palace and he, he looks out this window through the lattice and, and he sees in verse seven, I saw among the naive. That's just an, another word for, for youthful, maybe foolish, but youthful and foolish sometimes are the same, Amen. Right? You don't reach peak intelligence at age 16. Um, I I sorry, I saw among the naive, the the, the young, I discerned among the youth a young man lacking sense. A word sense in Hebrew is the Hebrew word for Leb. And that Hebrew word means literally heart. And I kind of wish they translated that way. It's not that he's lacking a sense just in the sense that he's not intelligent or he's he's a bit foolish. His heart is empty. He's low in his heart. That's the issue that he's struggling with. And I think that's so critical to our story. Because what he's saying here this person, this young man who's lacking heart, who's empty on the inside, he's telling us his state. He's feeling lonely. He's feeling isolated, feeling rejected and unwanted. He's feeling insecure. He's feeling unloved, he's feeling hurt. Maybe he's feeling broken and damaged from what others have done to him. Maybe he's just feeling he's not good enough. He's a failure. He's inferior. He's not measuring up to to the promise or the potential. Or maybe he just feels like he's got no purpose anymore. So he's just kind of drifting through life and his heart is so low and so empty. I think unless you're in denial, all of us can relate to that at some point. Every single one of us can, at some point, experience that that feeling low. Maybe maybe it's the result of a falling out with a friend. Maybe it's with a spouse where you got into arguments and you're not on the same page, or or you're feeling rejected by them because they're focusing more on on their work or on their hobbies or on their friends than you are. Or, or maybe you're feeling rejected in in terms of things, how things are going in the bedroom. Or maybe it's because you're single and you're feeling isolated because of that. Because everyone around you seems to be partnered up. What's wrong with me? And everywhere you go, you feel like you're just a third wheel. Or or maybe it's disappointments in life. Feeling discouraged and feeling lost. or, Or maybe it's just the friends seemingly cut you out. And you're again feeling lonely and isolated. It's such a dangerous place to be. See, in Genesis 4, 7, when God was speaking to Cain, remember Cain was the one that murdered Abel. He says to Cain, why so downcast? Literally, why the long face? What's what's causing you this pain, this hurt, this loneliness? If you're not careful, Cain, sin's crouching at the door. If you're not careful, Cain, sin's going to take advantage of your low, empty heart, and it's going to pounce, and it's going to kill you. It's going to cause all kinds of damage. And that was the case. That's what happened. Cain didn't take the warning and through it ended up murdering Abel. You see, it's such a dangerous place to have that empty low heart. Because in that moment, a lot of things that normally wouldn't seem attractive, wouldn't seem normal, become now attractive. Let me illustrate it to you this way. If I offered you uh, really, really great sewer water, you know, I mean, the stuff that's still got floaties in there. It's brown. I mean, it's just, it's a little salty right now with all the, the salt on the roads. I offer you sewer water. Anyone want to drink the sewer water? Any, any takers? I mean, it's, it's high quality sewer water, let me tell you. None of this Cambridge stuff. No, it's from Kitchener, right? No, it's like good stuff. Anyone want to drink it? No, it's sewer water. That's crazy. It's like Tim Hortons coffee. No one wants that stuff, right? So, so no one's going to drink it. But I'll tell you what, go three or four days without drinking anything, and now you're off to the sewer water, guess what you're going to do? You'll drink it. You might drink it before Tim Harden's, but you'll drink it because you're desperate now. And that's the thing with sin, is in, in a moment when you're desperate, everything seems possible. Everything seems capable of doing it. And that's why sin is looking for those moments to, to attack. And that's what we're gonna see. Continue on in our story. In verse 8, this young man he's passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and then the darkness. I, I don't believe he's looking for trouble. I don't think he's out there thinking, oh, what what kind of trouble can I get myself into? But he's in a spot. Where he shouldn't be doing things that maybe he shouldn't be doing. And now, this is when he gets into trouble. Sort of like that phrase nothing ever good happens after midnight. Well, that's sort of what's going on here. It's the middle of the night now. He should be at home, he should be in bed, but he's not. And, And you think about it how many accidents, quote unquote accidents, happen because someone's doing something they shouldn't? Driving too fast running a red light, being aggressive in their driving. So many, so so quote, quote unquote accidents are happening because we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. And that's true about sin. I mean, David and Bathsheba, you know, that whole episode never happens if David was doing what he was supposed to do. The whole story begins with, it was a time when kings go off to war and David stayed home. If David goes to work, all the problems go away. But that's what happens. We stay up too late and we should be sleeping and now we're tired and we're vulnerable now to sin's attacks. Or read books and we're watching a movie and then it's garbage in, garbage out. And we're wondering why we're struggling with some of our thoughts. Or maybe we should be working or we should be doing our homework and our schoolwork but we're neglecting our responsibilities. Or we're hanging around with the wrong kinds of friends that are bringing that negative impact upon us. Right, so he's in a place where he shouldn't be doing things he shouldn't be doing. Let's keep reading. Verse, um, verse eleven. Sorry, verse ten. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. She seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, "I was due to offer peace offerings." Today I've paid my vows, therefore I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for the man is not home. No one's going to find out. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he'll come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. It's a bait and switch. She's seducing him, offering him life, but reality—what's going to happen? It's a trap. It's a trap to experience death. It's like fishing. Anyone fish? You scheming little people. You—I mean, I mean, think about it, how fishing works, right? You got a little hook, and what do you put on the hook? Bait, also known as a lure. Isn't that a nice word for you, right? And what are you offering this bait? What are you trying to tell the fish? You got food. And for fish, I mean, that's the whole worldview, right? It's all about food. They live to eat, right? That's it. And, and so you offer the fish food, and it sees it, and it goes, oh, food. And it goes for it. And then what does the fisherman do? Gotcha. Ha! Right? Six sticks the hook in there, and, and it's, it's tricked the fish. It's deceptive. And that's what what flesh is trying to do. Trying to bait you with something that offers life, that seemingly looks good, but in reality is simply offering death. A a mentor of mine, he used to tell um, a definition of sin that he learned from a mentor of his. And it was that sin is getting a God-given need met in a God-forbidden way. Sin is getting a God-given need met in a God-forbidden way. It's not wrong to want to be loved. It's not wrong to want to feel safe. It's not wrong to want to feel value and worth and belonging and, and secure and all that. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But sin is saying, here's how you can get it without God. Here's how you can get it on your own terms. I mean, essentially, that was back what happened to Eve in the garden, right? She saw the tree and she thought, this tree will make me wise. It's not wrong to be wise. But the temptation was to go and find it on your own terms rather than finding it on God's terms. You see, that's how the flesh is working. It's offering to you and I something else. But to get there, to get to that point where we're desperate, it's going to attack our mind. It's going to attack our thoughts. And again, it goes way beyond just behavior. It goes way beyond sexual sin even. See, I think the greatest attacks, the flesh offers, is the stuff he's doing before he offers you and I the sinful out, the sinful behavior. Please understand when the flesh is coming after you and I, it's attacking your mind, it's running you down, it's condemning you. It's those thoughts that you're not good enough. Except they don't sound like you're not good enough, they sound more personal. I'm a failure. I'm never gonna measure up. No one's ever going to want to be with me. Why can't I get my act together? What's my problem? And all these these low self-esteem, these shame-filled, fear-filled thoughts are just bombarding our minds. And they're all coming from the flesh. Because when that's happening now, I'm getting more and more desperate. I'm getting more and more thirsty. And now that sewer water starts to look more attractive. Now that sinful action starts to look more, more appealing. Now I, I just gotta, I gotta, I gotta go alone. I gotta pull away from everyone. I'm just gonna withdraw. I'm gonna hide. I'm gonna go online and I'll, I'll just just do social media for a little while. Just just watch YouTube videos or, or watch Instagram and, 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 and maybe watch some things I shouldn't be watching, but it's okay. It's just, just a distraction. It's, it's not that big of a deal. Or maybe I should get angry. Maybe I should tear a strip off someone. Maybe I should go and and get in their face and let them know how I'm feeling. And all these thoughts seem more and more appealing to us because of all the groundwork that the flesh has been doing. Please understand the greatest temptation, the greatest temptation the flesh is offering you and I is to believe something different than what your father says about you. If you get anything from this morning, let that be it. The greatest temptation is to believe that there's something flawed, there's something broken, there's something damaged, something dirty about you, because it's contrary to what your father says about you. It's contrary to what the cross has accomplished. That's the greatest temptation we face over and over again, those negative thoughts. But when we listen to it now, we take hold of the adulteress's hand, and it's made it so appealing. You see, the reality those negative thoughts, they're coming for a reason. The flesh is pointing to other things in our life, pointing to other people's behavior. And somehow other people's behaviors and opinions and circumstances is supposed to say something about you. That's the lie. See, the only thing that matters when it comes to you is what Jesus did on the cross, what Jesus accomplished. That's the truth that sets us free. And so it's seductive. It sounds good. It sounds appealing. And so we grab hold of of the flesh's hand. And then beginning in verse 22, here's the outcome. Suddenly he follows her. We listen to the flesh. We agree that there's something wrong with me and, and the flesh will offer me a way out. And as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool till an arrow pieces, pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it'll cost him his life. Therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all who are slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. There's only ever one outcome. This is Romans six twenty three. Romans 6:23 isn't talking about salvation, it's talking about when you and I follow sin, even as believers, Paul says, "The wages of sin is death. And that's what Solomon's trying to say in Proverbs 7. When you take hold of the, what the flesh is offering you, when you take hold of that adulteress, it will lead you to a trap. The bait and switch takes hold. Instead of life, instead of food, you found death, you were trapped. Please understand, death is not separation from God here. Because what can separate, as a child of God, what can separate you from from God? Nothing. Nothing. Who said that? Jesus. Trustworthy statement, amen? So nothing can separate you from God. Nothing can snatch you out of his father's hand, he says. But not only that, it doesn't break fellowship with God. When, when my children sin, when they do something wrong, do I turn my back on them and say, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Is that what I do? No, I'm a father. I love my kids. I want to run to their aid to try to figure out why they're doing this. Well, why, why would you think I'm a better father than God is? We never break fellowship. We may want to hide from God, but how effective are you playing hide and seek with God? David said that in Psalm 139, right? No matter where I go, if I go high, if I go to the depths of the ocean, if I go to hell itself, got you right there, face to face. Face to face, eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose. I cannot escape you, God. You cannot break fellowship. You cannot separate yourself from him. You can't get him to turn his back on you or even you try and turn your back on him. You're simply not big enough. God says, I'm with you every step of the way but the death you and I experience here is an emptiness within our soul, a leanness in our soul. The best way I can describe it is, how did you feel afterwards the last time you sinned? Maybe you got angry, maybe you were trying to control and manipulate. Maybe you went online and were looking at pornography or, or maybe you were talking to someone that you know you shouldn't have been talking with. How did you feel afterwards? Did you feel great about yourself and feel all proud? go on Facebook and announce to everyone, look what I did. Or did you feel a little gross, a little rundown, feeling a little guilty and full of remorse and and not being able to look yourself in the eye, never mind anyone else afterwards? That's that leanness of the soul. That's what death looks like here. And that's what he's warning us against. That guilt and that shame and that sickness in my stomach. But you see, that's the whole point of the flesh. It's basically like offering us salt water. You drink some salt water, guess what? You're more thirsty, so you drink some more salt water and more salt water. It's like drugs. First one's free, right? Because then you're hooked. And now you need more drugs and more drugs and more drugs and more drugs. See, in the garden, there was no shame. But the result of that sin led to shame. But now we're in a cycle because shame now leads to more sin, which leads to more shame, which leads to more sin, which leads to more shame. And that's what sin, that's what the flesh is trying to do. So how do we respond to all this? Well, let's let's jump back now to Romans 6. Again, Romans 6 is such a powerful fundamental passage here because it speaks to the freedom. See, so many people are afraid that if we take the law away, what are people going to do? They're just going to go and live those sinful lifestyles. That would be true if you were still a sinner. Paul writes that, and he says, verse 3, don't you know? Have you not heard? Has no one told you that when you were baptized, when you were placed into Christ, you were also placed into his death? And so when Jesus died on that cross, your old spirit, that old sinner was crucified. And verse four was buried with him. And verse five, so you could be raised up with him as a brand new creation in his likeness now. You're just like your father, your heavenly father now. That's your spirit. That's who you are. And so in light of all this now, how do we face temptation? How do we face these trials Well, that's where verse 11 comes in. First command in the book of Romans. I think that's noteworthy. The first thing that Paul says you're to do with all of this knowledge, with all this information, verse 11, he says that we're to reckon. That's the old King James version. My version says consider, which I think is a wishy-washy kind of word. Consider, kind of think about it, right? Consider having a sandwich or having soup for lunch. I mean, do what you want. No, this, is, this word reckon is a mathematical term. It means to reconcile. It means add it up. Count it as a fact. So hold to this truth. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean you're incapable of sinning. It's not the verb. It's the noun. Sin's lost its dominion over you. Sin's lost its power. Reckon yourself dead to sin, but now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, therefore, don't let sin reign. Don't let it rule. Don't let it have dominion. Don't let it talk to you and control you anymore. That you would obey its desires. Did you catch it? Are they your sinful desires? Who do they belong to? Sin, which is in you, but not you. They belong to the flesh, which is your old master, but not anymore. So don't let it rule. Don't let it control you. Don't obey its desires, its wishes. Verse 13, and don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Don't present yourselves and don't listen to it. Don't follow it because when you do, you become an instrument of unrighteousness. You're attacking your own soul. You're attacking your own body, but you're going to attack those around you as well. Maybe you don't lash out on them, but you rob them of the opportunity and the experience of Jesus in you. Instead, offer yourself to God. Here I am. Presenting yourself like a, like a private would do to, the, to a sergeant or to the general. Here I am. How do I serve? What do you want to do? Become now an instrument of righteousness that Christ himself could now manifest through, that Christ himself could live through. You see, that's that's what Robin was trying to get at last week. When it was, it's not enough to know about Jesus. It's not enough to have information. We need to know him personally. That's the presenting ourselves to him. You see, if you only know about Jesus, that's like having a really nice car with a lousy engine in it. We call those Chryslers, right? (laughs) They're no good. They don't go anywhere. So there's no value in all of that. But if you know him intimately, now you got a strong engine. Now you got power in there. And that's, what it's, that's what's necessary, that we present ourselves, that we know him, we spend time with him, and we hear from him. We hear what he's saying to us to encourage us. You see, that begins to fill our hearts. That begins to protect us. See, you know what? you know what the number one way to prevent you from ever drinking sewer water is? Drink clean water. As long as you're drinking clean water, you'll never be desperate enough to drink sewer water. As long as you're presenting yourself to Jesus, you won't be able to present yourself to the flesh. As long as you're listening to him, the flesh has no space in there. Now that doesn't mean that the flesh won't attack. The problem is I've tried to take on the flesh on my own and I lose every time. See, it's sort of like you're in grade three and and you're just this little kid, and, and now a bully who's in grade six comes along. And they're they're three years older than you, right? So they're bigger, they're stronger, and they're smarter than you. You don't stand a chance. And that's what it's like with you in the flesh. You try to take on the flesh, you will lose every single time. But it's not your job to take on the flesh. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. Romans 8.13 says that we're putting to death the deeds, the desires of the flesh by the Spirit. Through the Spirit, the Spirit's going to overcome the flesh. So go back to the illustration of the bully. You're in grade three, grade six bully comes along, but you brought your older brother who's in college. What happens to the bully? Off he goes. So we turn to Jesus. Jesus, I'm under attack right now the flesh is saying all kinds of things and I just feel so so shamed, so so low, so empty just I want to give up. So Lord will you speak to me? And maybe he speaks to you through a song, maybe you hear the song in your head. maybe you start playing songs. maybe a verse comes to mind. maybe maybe you start reading the Bible and you're just just trying to find some inspiration in there. or maybe you reach out to a friend. And Jesus can now speak to that friend a word of encouragement and exhortation and help. But what's happening now is your, your eyes are moving away from the flesh, and moving back to Jesus, back to him. Let me let me close with, with these two passages in Romans. Romans 5, verse 20. We we'll always remember this, that the law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Even when you fail, even when you blow it, God's grace literally superabounds all the more. So please understand, even when you screw up, God's right there in love with no condemnation. But He's an offer to us now. And so in Romans 6, beginning verse 21, Paul writes, Therefore, what benefit you, what. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. When, think about the you, maybe in your past when you're when you're engaged in those sinful behaviors or when you're engaged even in those those negative self-talk. What benefit was it to you? It was none. All it did was was leave you empty, leave you less fulfilled, more guilt-ridden, more shame-filled, more empty in the inside. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Instead of death by following the flesh, following that adulteress, now we can experience life, eternal life, when? Right now not just in the sweet by and by, not when you and I go to heaven, but eternal life right here, right now, because eternal life is a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's his life. He is a true God and he is eternal life, it says in 1 John 5.20. And so we can experience Jesus right now. That's available to us. Now, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It's Jesus so let's turn our hearts to him. Let's listen to him, especially when the flesh is trying to attack us and tempt us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you will never abandon us. You'll never forsake us. Even the times where we've, we've not listened to you, we've rejected you, you still will never reject us. That when we're faithless, you remain faithful. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that in those moments, especially in those moments when we're struggling, that we would have the courage to turn to you, that it wouldn't be us trying to overcome the flesh anymore. It's not us trying to fight it. Instead, we would trust you. And by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, put to death those desires, those thoughts, those temptations, those lies, and we would hold to the truth, the truth of who you are, what you've done, and who we are now as a result. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment eBook that is sure to encourage and bless Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.